You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, people, I have been threatening for some time to make sure that we have a exclusive Aussie season, because as I've said before, every American and every human being needs more Aussies in their life. Uh, we just, we're like salt. We make everything better. And we say it humbly. We are humble about how great we are. But I have a particular Aussie guest that I'm, I'm thrilled to introduce today. Uh, when I knew I wanted to do an Aussie episode, I was really hoping this guest would come on the show. And it's it, oftentimes when I introduce a guest, I'll talk about their books. But this is just somebody I think you just know when I say her name. I'd love to welcome Christine Kane. Welcome to the show. Hey, Steve, it's such an honor, honestly, to be on this show, especially the Aussie edition. The Aussie edition. It's, it's, <laughs> uh, it's the special edition of the show. And um, yeah, my wife Lisa's sitting in too. So our listeners, you might hear from Lisa as well as she pops some questions to Christine. But we were so excited to talk to you, Christine, because we're familiar with your story. You've, you've been very open about the, the phenomenal struggle. And I, I use the word struggle as an understatement that you overcame and that the gospel's overcome in your life. And, and it's not just that you've survived it, but you've then somehow stewarded that into your leadership, uh, the way you empower women, the incredible work you, you do with A21 in uh, rescuing people from sex trafficking. So uh, that's kind of in, in, a, in a brief introduction. Let's get started on, could you take us back to when, when did you first get an inkling that you're a leader? Um. I was thinking about that question. I would say my first grade report card in Australia, you know, you're six years old, you go to kindergarten, seven years old, it's first grade. And um, I remember coming home with my first grade report card and Mrs. Black was my teacher because I still have that report card. And it said on there, Christine Karyophilus, because that was my name, <laughs> Christine Karyophilus must learn that she cannot always be the leader. And that phrase, but it actually shattered me, um, you know, in that sense. Like I remember, I, I, I can tell you consciously as a seven-year-old child, I can remember the walk home to my school, to my home in Layla Park in Sydney, and I started crying because, number one, I don't think I ever, I, I wouldn't have had language to think leader, um, but, you know, I... Uh, had come from a background, um, Steve, of, of childhood sexual abuse, and by then it had well and truly started. So school for me was a haven. And um, I came from a quite a strict Greek Orthodox home where certainly women were never encouraged to uh, step out of the boat or to display their gifts in any way. I mean, a woman's role was simply to one day become a wife and a mother um, and to look after domestic uh, tasks. Of course, I'm 54 this year, so you go way back then. Uh, a woman only had one role. And so that was very much the framework that shaped my thinking. So there was no place. The only thing I would have heard at home was, Christine, why are you so bossy? Why are you always trying to be a boy? You should be quiet. You should sit down. You know, I think if I look back, I go, oh, that was all very early signs that I had uh, leadership potential. It's just 54 years ago, or well, then 48 years ago when I was that age, um, there was no room to say a woman or a girl at a school could have been a leader. And in fact, Mrs. Black went as far, which is pretty much the story of a lot of my formative years, 
uh, Christine has to learn she actually can't be that. She shouldn't be that. She shouldn't. And as I have discovered, I mean, I'm half a century old now, um, that normally the enemy would try to come and attack the very area that God wants to use you in mightily. And so uh, being a woman and a leader the Lord had woven into the framework of who I was, um, and the enemy came after that very, very young. So I, I would yeah. say that. And then all throughout school, you know, I was the, the captain of my sporting teams, the senior prefect. Pre- so I think there was those places. There would not have been anywhere else for me to do that because my culture, um, of course, I grew up Greek Australian. So in a time where Greek migrants were very marginalized in Australian culture when I was growing up. And so we were never in the mainstream of Australian culture anyway. So I grew up in a Greek bubble. And in that bubble, a woman was very much subjugated, very misogynistic culture, very sexist culture. So you, ju- I just... Um, I was always confused in my mind amongst everything else that was going on in my life, but that was one of them. Yeah, and that's one of the challenges, isn't it, Christine? Like even as you started, like you're the captain of the sport team, but once you move into religious leadership, that's a different ballgame because now in some cultures people are saying, well, you're violating God. So oh, God's, God's gifted you to lead. And so what was that like for you as you started stepping into leadership inside the church? Yeah, I have to be, very, um, I'm very grateful. The Lord protected me in many ways. So I grew up 18 years in a Greek Orthodox tradition. So I thought I was going to be a nun because I didn't know what else a, a woman could do. I mean, so your framework, if you're Catholic or Orthodox, you know, the, and before the internet, you know, I, I was around before there was an internet, before there was social media. So I, it wasn't that I could scroll through the latest woman's conference or the latest uh, woman preacher or teacher that I had never seen it. And, you know, um, all I had seen anyone in terms of uh, a religious person or religious order. It was a nun. So there was the priests and the nuns. And so, in fact, I had sent away uh, to the Greek Orthodox Theological Seminary um, for enrollment into a course because I thought that's what I, I, I felt. I use the language now in more Protestant terms. I felt the call. All I could say is I thought I was going to work for God. But then a friend invited me to um, a church in Australia, and I think this was my saving grace. At the time, it was just a very, uh, it was a church that had just been planted, just starting up. Today, around the world, we know that church as the Hillsong Church. But yeah, when Hills I Christian went, in the good old days. it was Hills Christian Life Center 30 yeah. odd years ago. Yeah. We were in a warehouse in the back of nowhere for a Greek Orthodox kid like me who had only been in major Greek Orthodox cathedrals. I wouldn't have even called this a church. I mean, it was a warehouse. There was a band. Um, there was, you know, uh, seats. But when I walked in, as the Lord would have it in his sovereignty, I walked in the back of that warehouse, a couple of hundred people, um, and the it was the person that was speaking that day was the youth pastor who happened to be a woman. And she was the only woman youth pastor in all of Australia. She was a woman and the senior pastor was not there that Sunday. So that Sunday night was like a service. And as I walked in the back door, there's a woman. It it just, you know, I didn't even have a category to put that in. I didn't have a framework to place that. But I was so captivated so captivated. And I would probably say in that moment, 
you know, well, if, if not consciously, subconsciously, I knew that's what I had been called to do. And that's why it's so important that young women see women uh, with a microphone, which is why, you know, I, I, I go to so many churches and certain post pictures that I would post on my social media, it's not because um, I'm besotted with myself and I need to look at myself. I want young women to see a woman holding a microphone behind a pulpit. So I do it for them um, in that way because I know that if you see it, you can begin to dream it. But if you don't see it, you won't. So I would say I just began serving, I, you know, um, it, it just – which very much is, I think, any call to ministry, you find a need and you meet it. And, you know, it certainly wasn't behind a pulpit with a microphone. It was with six teenage girls in a discipleship group. And as it all starts doing Bible study, um, one thing led to another thing, led to another thing. And 31 years later, here I am. Yeah. Yeah. And and my experience is almost every leader I respect uh, is thrown in the deep end before they're ready to lead. Um, could you give us an example early in your ministry leadership when you felt like you were completely over your head? And just to warn you, Christine, the question after that is, when's the more recent time? Like in oh, the last few a... weeks. Yeah. Because yeah, I do last, think uh, yeah. particularly a lot of our young leaders, they they believe that's something you grow out of, that you eventually actually yeah. know what to do. So just start out by giving us a story from early. Well, I think in my life it's always been like this. Even my call to ministry in that sense was I walked into the youth. I was in youth group one night and the, the youth pastor had said, we're going to have a church cleanup day on Tuesday. At the time I was studying English and economic history at Sydney University. So, you know, that basically means I've got a degree for reading golden books and I can count to 10. So, you know, I, I um, was had about three hours a week of, of class. So you were looking for an excuse not to go. I wouldn't espouse this to everyone. But anyway, it was like, awesome, I'll come to the cleanup day. Then I don't have to go uh, to uni that day. And it's really legitimate because I'm serving at church. So how could God be angry <laughs> that, that I'm dishonoring my commitment? And so I turn up and here is the deal. This is the story of my life when it comes to leadership. I'm just there to serve, to clean up because I could do clean up. I don't know much about the Bible. I've grown up in a Greek Orthodox church where the priest, you know, you can only go to God through the priest. I didn't even know you could read a Bible or, you know, um, so I know hardly nothing. I'm turning up. I'm so in love with God. Jesus really saved me. I was still so broken. I wouldn't have even had language for that then. So wounded. Back in 1989, nobody in Australia was talking about sexual abuse. There wasn't a class I could go to. There was that. So I had all this past that was fragmented, broken, uh, no language to put around it. You just bury it. Behold, I'm a new creation. Somehow that means, you know, in my thinking, the past doesn't matter. We're here. I'm already feeling strange. I'm Greek. I've grown up in a Greek culture. I'm now suddenly in this, not just Protestant church, but a Pentecostal Protestant church that was considered back then in 1989 in Australia as a very fringe church, probably borderline cultic. I didn't know any of these things. We weren't even, by the real church in Australia and in Sydney, we were not even considered a church. We were like a laughing stock. So that's why people like me thrived there because we were always on the margins. I grew up in the poorest zip code in Australia. I was the Greek immigrant. I'm already broken. So, you know, the, the kind of grassroots Pentecostal church, it, it has people like us because we don't fit anywhere else. We don't yeah, fit in the like establishment. So it, it gathers us. And so um, 
I'm there, I go to clean up, and nobody else from the youth ministry turns up. So the assistant youth pastor, he he looks down the stairs, he goes, oh, you're Christine Cariophilus, aren't you? Like, And it shocked me. And, you know, I was so broken back then, uh, Steve and Lisa, that the fact that someone knew my name just was, that was enough. You know, when you're looking for breadcrumbs, anything will do that. You're just like, oh, my gosh, somebody knows and it matters that I'm here. And um, he said, you go to, you're doing psychology at university, aren't you? And I only ever did one year. I said, no, I'm doing English and economic history and a minor in, um, you know, whatever it was, Psych 101 at Sydney. And he goes, so before I even said it, he said, look, we just got a government grant for a youth centre and I don't know really what a youth centre is, but I'm about to go to South Africa with a senior pastor for a six-week mission trip. So when I come back, I'd love a youth centre and because you're the only one in the youth ministry that's at university, because we were so desperate and we were just like so working class and most people were like, you know, uh, blue-collar workers and I, I, I don't know, I was like it that was at uni. Um, he said, when I come back, would you just get it all started? I did not know what a youth centre was <laughs> I, and he threw me a pager. And so I say my whole start to ministry was a lie because a pager in those days you know, someone would call and, and somebody else would answer from the paging service to go, hello, Hills District Youth Service, can I help you? Um, and they would say, can I speak to Christine? They'd say, she's not in the office. But there was no office. And so yeah, then sure. I would call somebody once I got the beep beep from a public phone and go, hi, it's Christine. I just got back in the office, which there is no office. And so that is my whole start to ministry that I got a pager and a grant to do something I didn't know, but only God knew the foundation of the Hills District Youth Service, which still exists today, 31 years later, was my big beginning to ministry because there was nobody else. I was the only person that turned up to a cleanup day. And it was there in 1990, 1991, two, three, four, that I learned to write government grants, that I learned to go to businesses for support, that I learned how to run youth programs in Aussie schools that were based on, um, I learned how to communicate to lost people because I couldn't talk about Jesus, but I could talk about bullying. I could talk about safety. I could talk about, uh, I could run English as a second language classes. I didn't know God was preparing me then for the things I do globally today. A21, 18 countries, I work with the UN, I work with the Red Cross, but if I didn't learn to write council grants in Sydney, Australia in 1990, um, I wouldn't be doing it. I was learning there how to run drop-in centres and to connect with unchurched people. And when the established church thought I was being carnal because we would have outreach nights and play secular music and connect with lost people and at-risk young people, well, nowadays we call that missional church and it's all really trendy and we write books <laughs> yeah. on it. And we, yeah. Well, you know, I didn't realise I was being missional church before there was missional because yeah. we were desperate and so we had to uh, do that. And so a lot of the tension that I now uh, straddle, the, the merging of maybe the charismatic church and the evangelical church, well, 
you know, I was learning back then um, how to connect with an unchurched generation and how to bring biblical truth and the gospel into a lost world. But I was also learning how to use the gifts of the Spirit in a very real world, but also have to operate um, in the fruit of the Spirit. And I always say I was never charismatic enough for the charismatics. I was never evangelical enough for the evangelicals. But I learned how to bring those two things together in real world time. So for me, it was never, is it evangelism? Is it justice? It was always two sides of the same coin. Like how on earth were we going to proclaim the gospel if we were not willing to meet the needs of a community or connect with people right where they were? So for me, I haven't had to go through a great understanding of how do we connect this into a real world? It's only ever been a real world. And because I've always operated at the margins. No one was really worried about what the fact my gender because desperate people don't care what gender you are. And so I was not trying to impress the front row of the church establishment. I was trying to reach those that were never even in the back row yet. And so when you are, and to this day, you know, by God's grace, I speak in probably the largest Christian gatherings in the world across the spectrum to pastors and leaders, to youth, to women, to the whole lot. Um, to this day, I still remember, and I still maintain that I am not there to impress the other ministers on the front row. I am there to reach the broken person on the back row. And if I always focus on reaching the broken person, I will always have a ministry because the world is broken and people are broken. And so I don't need to impress people with how much theological knowledge I've got. I need to connect. And your story is what Jesus has always used to connect with broken people. And um, it, it was, I didn't know how else to connect with people. I didn't know you were meant to mask it or have some sort of veneer because Jesus saved me. And I was a man. I have no other testimony. I, don't, I, I have nothing else to say. I can't impress anyone with anything. I, I didn't come from the right family. I wasn't born the right way. I didn't, you know, have the right background. And the establishment would never have accepted me because of my gender. The establishment would, I, I could never have made it through. Even when I became Youth Alive Director in Sydney, Australia. So I ran the largest youth movement in the country where we worked interdenominationally, large events, you know, up to 20,000 kids in a stadium and, you know, the whole nine yards, all that goes with that. And I would have the established church people and leaders would come and almost like meet with me in secret, like, we, you know, we've come and we've sat in the back row and we came with the intention of criticizing you. And we couldn't fault what you said and we couldn't fault what the response and we couldn't fault the presence of God, but we don't know what to do because you're a woman. And so I've always had that, but it never worried me. I said, well, I don't care. Sneak in. Nicodemus sneaked into Jesus. You know, it's like nothing new that the establishment always sneaks in yeah. when they see the reality. So that's yeah. that we've got a biblical precedent for that. Um, and I'm not worried because I'm not trying to climb any uh, ecclesiastic ladder um, and God has, I've always just been a believer. I don't know if that's the Pentecostal side, that God opens doors that no man can shut. Promotion doesn't come from the north, south, east or west. It comes from God. And um, and so I have had to hang on to Jesus for dear life. I didn't get into this to make build a career. Jesus called me to make me a fisher of men. So for 31 years, all I've done is been, you know, a fisher of people, um, however that works, whether it's A21 or Propel or 
television, all the things that I do with preaching and teaching. Uh, and my main thing has always been the main thing, which is to um, help lead people to Jesus. And so I um, I find it easy to morph in and out because I always feel God's going to put me where God wants me to be. I don't have to try to get anywhere. And um, if I can keep doing the inner work so my ego stays in check, then my insecurities and my brokenness won't make me succumb to trying to be a man pleaser because who doesn't want approval? Who doesn't want to be, you know, who doesn't want Mrs. Black not to say you shouldn't be a leader? Like, you know, I'm 54 this year. Uh, who wouldn't want the establishment to go, you know what, you're, you're not really bad. You're not as bad as we thought. So the only way I can keep that in check, God just makes sure. I think there's like a, a governor on the inside of me. God <laughs> just makes sure, honey, I'm just not going to let you go over there for your own good. And there is just enough consistent brokenness in me to keep me in check, I think, you know, I'm not so healed that what I don't need Jesus. Like, like I, I don't know, you know, so, um, and then, you know, it, so I, I mostly don't think about it. And in many other ways, God has put me in places that someone like me shouldn't be. And so, you know, I am across the board. I, you know, have written Bible study with Lifeway. I'm, uh, at Wheaton college. I, and part of the Hillsong team, I speak across the board, including, you know, to, I'm in Europe and speak with the Catholic Church. I'm like, I'm like everywhere. So it's I'm, I'm kind of like God somehow has made sure that it all works and it works. And here I am. It's, it's really amazing, Christine. Like just as I was listening to your talk, uh, I, I think one of the reasons people follow you is your incredible passion. You just ooze passion. Um, but the other thing that was coming to mind as you were talking is uh, when the Apostle Paul says that I am one abnormally born. Um, and that's also your story. Um, like you've gone from, uh, you know, I, I don't remember, it was an unnamed on your birth certificate, right? Your number yeah. 2508, if I mm-hmm. remember right. That's your Literally, name. It says child name unnamed is typed in the word unnamed number 2508, 2508. of nineteen sixty six. Yeah, and you've gone from that, and and the other thing that makes me think of is Second Corinthians one is that um, you know blessed is the Father of all comfort who comforts us in us our trials so that we can then comfort others. Yeah. I think that's a lot of where your power is coming from. It makes sense to me that you could really give a rip about somebody's opinion when you're in the rescue business. I think, and when we remember, that's really what we're all in. That's why we're here, this side of eternity. You know, on the other side we won't be on the rescue business because it's done. But um, this side, I, I truly have a revelation that Jesus rescued me so that, you know, even then Paul says we comfort, uh, we receive the comfort so that. So I'm very big on others. the so that's of the Bible. Yeah. I think yeah. a lot of Christians forget the so that. And when you forget the so that, you get caught up in a whole lot of other stuff that this side of eternity we really shouldn't be getting caught up with. So, so that helps, I think, keep us on the pathway to healing as well and wanting to and embracing the pain of recovery at whatever level, including now, you know, so that um, so that so that I can keep reaching more people. And I think it keeps me very aware, you know, to a lot of people, they sort of go, Chris, are you not overwhelmed? There's 40 million slaves on the earth today, more than ever before in the history of humanity. It's huge. And of course, we all know that um that numbers are very numbing. Numbers are dehumanizing. Numbers are desensitizing. It's why the 
you know, Auschwitz victims were tattooed and numbered. Right. It's, it's, it's what we do. Uh, and it's easy to ignore suffering when it's nameless and faceless and it's just a number. But God has made sure they're never just a number for me. I just need to glance at my birth certificate and go, is that a number? It's, it's, yeah. it's permanently etched it in, in who I am. Is like 2508. Well, you and, 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 and even when I got that birth certificate, because I think in all of my, you know, so much of my brokenness and trauma of my past, probably the thing that, that could have unraveled me more than anything, certainly sent me down a trail, was the day that the Department of Community Services sent me my documents. And it's such a weird thing at 34 to get documents when you thought you had documents. I mean, I could imagine yeah, the therapist right. all of you is just going off now. This is like, <laughs> yes, so, you yeah. know, I'm sitting at home in my kitchen a lot like now and you and I, nothing could have prepared me for it, not even finding out I was adopted. I, 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 nothing could have prepared me for opening that envelope and pulling out that birth certificate and literally just seeing the word unnamed 2508. I, I still out of everything, 12 years of sexual abuse, so much other brokenness in my life, that moment, probably above every moment, was the I, I, like a knife in my heart. I don't even know how to explain it, but it it could have unraveled me. If I didn't, I mean, it was God's grace that I and mercy that I'd already been a Christian for 10 years and very passionate and had a lot of word in me because it could have really, un, if I had found that out earlier, I, I don't know what it would have done. But but in that moment, and sorry for all the listeners of the podcast, this will be the Pentecostal side of me. As I was sitting there, I didn't even know this scripture was in the Bible. And back in those days, you know, good Pentecostal, I only read the New King James Version. And so that was, you know, so I'm sitting in my room. I'm weep. I'm sobbing. I'm, to be honest, I'm probably almost in a, a fetal position. It really just, I, I literally collapsed to the floor when I saw that. But I felt um, the Holy Spirit say to me, go to Isaiah 49 verse 1. I wouldn't have even known this was in the Bible. And I, I turned, I mean, I'm sobbing, sobbing. And I opened it up and it said in New King James English, it said, from the matrix of your mother, I have named your name. Mm-hmm. And just that thing, from that scripture from the womb, from the matrix of your mother, I have named your name. I can't even explain to you that in in half a second, that was 20 years of therapy in my life. I don't, what that word in that moment, in that fetal position, on the floor, in my, you know, k- kitchen, um, way back, so I was 34, so whatever that makes it, that's 20 years ago. Uh, what that did um, was something in me that made me know that nobody is a number. Everybody in from, you know, before we even got here, God had named, in our mother's womb, God named our name. From the matrix of your mother, I have named your name. And so I think for what the work that I do, whether, you know, I reach millions of people a day through television, I, I um, by God's grace, you know, um, whatever, whatever I do, social media, rescuing uh, the victims of human trafficking, it's never a number for me. God has enabled me to simultaneously reach millions, but see one all, all the time. It's always one. I could be, I was in, uh, where was I? In Brazil just a, a month ago before all of this happened. And, you know, I'm in one arena, there's 65,000 beautiful Brazilian people. But I, I don't know, in me, 
I, I see one. I can be in all of that and it's just there's one and not just one. I'm always thinking of I take my team before we do any big event or whatever and the arena is empty and I just will go and stand at different seats in the arena before anyone's in there and I'll talk to the team. I go, we're here today because sitting in this seat will be a young woman that just had an abortion two days ago and, and she it wants to end her life. There, and then I'll go 10 seats up. There's another woman. She'll be sitting here and she's being beaten at home and she's got her, her husband is a deacon in a church. And, she, and I'll just go through tw- and uh, somehow it helps us all remember I'm not talking out there to everyone. I was that one that's sitting in that seat and I'm always looking for that one. I'm always looking for the one. And I think Jesus did the same thing, to be honest, had a capacity. Crowds followed him everywhere. So you're never going to hear me be an anti-crowd or an anti-big church Christian. I'm all about it. Um, And I'm all about the one. And I'm all about home church. I don't really care how we reach people. I don't care how many are there. Uh, I don't know why people have to write blogs about all that stuff. I'm like, just look at the field that God's given you and let's just go and reach uh, the one. So I think um, that it's my own story is so woven into it. It's like um, some a prophet once said to me, Christine, you're like Elijah the Tishbite. And if you if you remember when Elijah, all the other prophets in the Bible turn up, and there's always a genealogy of those prophets. There's all of them have got a genealogy, except there's only one prophet in the Bible that doesn't. It's Elijah. The Bible says when he comes in, I think it's either First Kings or First Samuel 17. It says, "Now Elijah the Tishbite, like." Who is he? Where did he come from? Zero genealogy. And that's like me. We have no genealogy. It's like, well, Christine, here I am kind of thing. That's how I feel. Uh, you know, Christine, the other thing about Elijah is he he did have these phenomenal um, ministry encounters where God showed up in these spectacular ways. And then, of course, he also had these incredible depths of almost depression, <laughs> right? Like where he went, he was iso- he self-isolated and he went into self-pity. I wonder if you'd be willing to give us a little bit of that side as well. Like you do have this unbelievable, um, what feels to me like a very weighty ministry, not just your television ministry, but your A21 work. Yeah. Give us a bit of a taste of what is life like for you when you are discouraged or when you are depleted? What does that look like for you? For sure. And I love, yeah, because I, I there is no doubt. I, I, I was laughing because even up to a couple of weeks ago, you know, my husband's like, you're not Elijah under the tree. Oh, no, not you're not. Christine, here we go again. Here you are under the tree thinking that you're the only one. Yeah. <laughs> There's still 7,000 out there that haven't bowed their knees. So yeah. definitely I can, um, I, with it, if I am not attentive to my own spiritual disciplines or having the right checks and balances in my life, I've got one very dear friend that knows me inside and out and, you know, is like, Chris, you know, I, I can spiral there. You know, my, my brain, I, I love you uh, talk about, you know, um, our mind. What do you, what's the phrase? Like the that you story used? we tell ourselves uh, is what I call it. Yeah. yeah. And, and that our mind can spin out of control. Like yes. my, my capacity for obsessive rumination. I'm just trying to think from your book about our mind, our heart, um, and our sensing gut. that yeah. anxiety. No, yes. you're doing great. Um, yeah. The, the big idea yeah. is that we believe the lie that we can worry our way to peace, that if we just worry more, oh, we'll get to peace. It'll yeah. just go. So yeah. I, for me, I mean, you know, of course I'm classic about, uh, in terms of trust and really having to work hard to stay in that place of trusting God. Um, and I've done a lot of work for three decades continually, but as I say, I'm only ever one thought away from going back to it. That's why for me, when people go, gee, you speak with such passion. 
I'm like, you all don't realize I sort of, it, it is life and death for me. Like it really, God has not ever allowed me for some reason to not be like daily manner, utterly dependent on him um, because I could just spiral really quick. So the spiritual disciplines for me are not like this legalistic, I have to do it. I'm saying it's survival. Like I have to do it. I have to do it to stay connected to God. And I know some people just don't believe that, but it is what it is. It just, and yeah, my husband will tell you that if I don't, my mind and my capacity for obsessive rumination, I mean, that's my biggest thing with my therapist that we would go through constantly is, Christine, you have got to steal your mind. You've got to steal your mind because it just, that, and a part of that is, you know, from being a kid that it's just to survive every day, you're working out, how am I going to do this? How am I going to live today? How am I going to avoid this? And so then you get into doing what I do now and we have 18, A21 officers around the world, uh, you know, almost 300 staff. Um, if you want to know, you know, Christine, what's a recent thing? Well, let's just have a global pandemic when you have 300 staff and 18 officers and you're reaching the the, the victims of human trafficking. Uh, I, You know, um, Christine, when was the last time that you were thrown into a scenario where you felt out of your depth? Um, an hour ago. And yeah. when we hang up from this podcast, whatever emails are waiting for me from somewhere in the world, it'll be then because at the moment it's an hour-by-hour hour thing going, well, I've never led in a global pandemic before. I've never wondered how we're going to get salaries to 300 people before. I've never wondered how, you know, like I, it, it is right now um, an hour-by-hour hour thing. So thank God that we've got a, um, a just a good depth that we can lean on um, because otherwise we could crumble under the weight of what of leading this kind of organisation in this kind of climate. I mean, people are stressed enough for their own lives and their own livelihood and their own families. Multiply that exponentially, 18 countries of the world, and I've got staff in countries that are doing it way harder than even we are right now um, in places like Bulgaria and the Ukraine and Poland and talking to some of my team members that just live in two-bedroom apartments with four kids under four and just they're not allowed to go out literally more than one at a time because they're in tighter lockdowns and we are and have no access to food and water and and then let alone if I start thinking about what's happening to uh, the victims of human trafficking while the whole world is in lockdown, every law enforcement officer is consumed with this pandemic nobody is looking for traffic victims except for traffickers. The ones that are thriving in this hour are traffickers. And so, you know, my mind could really start to uh, spiral out of control with, whoa, what what do we do? And our freedom centres are on lockdown and how do you serve people and what do you do? So um, I'm very grateful for 30 years of doing the work continuously, not saying I did it in 1990 and here I am in 2020 uh, having to deal with something that is so far out of my league. There is not one textbook in any library I can go. I can't even go back to the Spanish pandemic in 1918 and say, how did you deal with the global anti-trafficking organization and reaching millions of people on the internet? Um, and how did you stay in faith and be a hope-filled leader? And what were the mechanisms? No one is gonna has written that book. And so, you know, right. you've got to be utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit and utterly committed 
to uh, your spiritual practices in this hour if you're going to move forward. Well, and also your some of the tools that you've always had have been taken from you. You travel and speak, and that's part of how you drive awareness for A21. Uh-huh. Um, all right, let's do this, Christine. Uh, just, just take us inside your head. Uh, are you able just to name for us, okay, when you first start to notice the spinning, what is the message in your head? Um, it will – what would be the first thing that I start to think? Um, I, know, I'm, I know I'm starting to think these two things happen because my heart races too, but okay. the message becomes um, – and it's and I'll, I'll start – it's like clockwork. I'll start getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning. And it's not, okay. not that I'm tired or anything, but that's the – it is – and I could tell last week when that, that hasn't happened for – months like more than months you know probably yeah. I can't even remember the last time it happened um and then it would be like three nights in a row and uh, I woke Nick up and so I, after I've done spiritually everything I think okay is this an attack it, then I go no this is this this is that because then I start to think about how how am I going to that would be my first sort of yeah, phrase it's all on me right how, that's the yeah, belief how am I yeah. and what's going to happen there's 45 speaking engagements immediately cancelled. I'm the biggest fundraiser for A21. I'm the biggest um, awareness raiser for A21. Um, I am I, – and it, I could begin there. That would be the big thing is how am I? How am I? I haven't even brought God into this equation yet yeah. because I start going into down that road. Yeah, thanks. That's, I, that's really helpful. I appreciate you doing that because it just helps people – recognize their own journey. And I think part of why Lisa and I were so excited to have you on as well is some of the guests we interview, they lead churches or they lead things that really matter. But what is horrific is that these pandemics generally affect already profoundly marginalized people. They Mm -hmm. also become an opportunity, as you said, an opportunity for exploitation. And my goodness, just your ability to be well in an unprecedented time, I can't imagine. Yeah, it, I think the tools though that we have, I think this is where, where everyone's got to read your book because those tools um, are really what work, but you've got to be so mindful of them, attentive yeah. to them. So those practices and um, I'm I'm reading, I'm listening to those kind of podcasts because I go, all I can control right now is my inner world. I have no control of anything else. So um, that is what I'm doing. And I'm doing it with as much fervor, you know, uh, because I will, I will spiral. That's the thing is I just know that I will and, um, and into utter helplessness. And then I will go to hopelessness because there is nothing. There is nothing I can do like I used to do, but there is plenty I can do if I'm healthy. So if I'm healthy, what I can bring to our staff, what I can bring to our team, what I can bring in terms of creativity, how I am for my daughters, you know, I'm I'm going up because they're upstairs in their bedrooms on online school right now. I have an 18-year-old and a 14-year-old. How Nick and I and our marriage in this moment uh, can work together. So I am just about morning to night focused on my on my inner world and then I'm probably reaching more people externally because of course I'm doing more Facebook lives and with churches and there's so much public thing that I'm out there doing to encourage the body of Christ right now but the only degree to which I could do that in a healthy way is utterly dependent on how healthy I am internally so that's my big focus 
I wanted to ask you, Christine, I think one of the things that anxiety and shame, because you do a lot with shame as well, have in common is just when they're at their peak, it's the message that I can't, um, that I'm not able to, or that I'm not enough in this. And I think um, when things like a pandemic set in and you've got global issues on your shoulder, um, that's the tendency is to go down that route. Could you give us more specifics, even with your own spiritual disciplines um, that sure. you use to combat that, to remind yourself it's bigger than just you and to get back in the mindset of we can? Totally. And I love that question because, you know, again, that's a, some days are harder fight than other days for me, but yes. that whole, I'm not enough. I can't do again. Cause my default is what can I do? I can't do this as if somehow, you know, um, I could do anything more than Jesus did at Calvary. So it's just, it's still a, a constant, but I have to remind myself of that all the time because that sense of, again, when I say I could begin to spiral and of course, so much of that is tied into abandonment, rejection, abuse, all of that is like, there's something wrong with me. There's the, the whole tape recorder in my mind for the first two and a half decades of my life is there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. And then the next two decades has been a process of trying to reprogram that, that, you know, um, of understanding my belovedness and who I am in Christ. And, uh, and most days I'm better at that than other days, but there's lots of days that I still, uh, if I make a mistake, the perfectionist in me can instantly start thinking I did one thing wrong, therefore I am wrong. And so I think sometimes I can get paralyzed even in this going, if I, if I do one thing wrong, if I give one country a wrong direction or whatever, somehow it equates to I'm wrong. And um, so that the fight constantly internally of it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to make mistakes. There's not that many people that have led through a global pandemic. I'm going to say something wrong. I might give a wrong instruction and we're just going to have to try it a different way. So mm. the thing that for me works the best and, um, and has is really memorizing scripture and saying scripture out loud. And I mean, really giving myself to that and uh, declaring what God says about me. And I just have to do it. So much of that I could do by rote memory, but I mean, where I really, I mean, I'm talking old school where I will make, and I've done that. I've been doing this uh, lately, writing it out again, sticking it on a mirror, looking in the mirror and saying it to myself, reminding myself who I am according to the word of God. You would think after 30 years and doing what I do that you, but, but it just, I don't know whether it just comforts me or it's how I do it. And I've, I've done, you know, I've taken on over the last, since this pandemic started, a little bit more intentional kind of breathing prayer. And uh, and some of that works for me some days better than others. I've, I've tried not to put a guilt trip on myself because all my friends are really getting into this at the moment. And I'm like, okay, it doesn't seem to work for me like it's working for my friends and going, it's okay, Chris, maybe because I'm in a hyper-stress situation. Some familiarity of what has worked for me for 30 years is going to be, you know, really good. So I think some of us need to not put too much pressure on ourselves that developing new practices in a already very heightened moment is not, you know, the best thing that we can do right now. You just led us through a, a beautiful example of how breaking free from shame and the message we tell ourselves is an ongoing multi-year battle. It's not a one-and-done situation. And so particularly for our listeners, if they're still battling it, that's completely normal. 
uh, and it's worth the fight, right? Like that's it's, it's worth that ongoing battle. Well, it's it's a daily uh, yes because it's a fight of faith. What's at stake here is 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 our faith, and so I think sometimes we think a giant, you know, one and done. Now the giants appear in different ways, in different seasons, at different times. So because I killed Goliath back there, doesn't mean Goliath's not coming back in a different form. Here. Or his now, bigger brother shows now, up sometimes. Or his big brother or his stepbrother or his cousin or whatever it might be. Um, I think it's not that I, I, the big uh, stronghold it had over my life is gone for sure. Uh, that's, I, I'm not in that stronghold. But the fight to stay free, well, that's. I think I'm going to have that till the day I die. That's the bottom line. So, Christine, before we get to the gauntlet, um, one of the concerns that Lisa and I had with interviewing you is we knew there'd be so many different areas we could dive into. I do want to make sure we have just a quick opportunity for you to share with gifted women who are listening to this, who are gifted even to preach. Like, you are a gifted preacher of the Bible. I know I, as a theological nerd myself, I have learned a lot from your preaching, I'd be remiss just to not ask you, what message would you like to uh, have our ladies know who are gifted to preach? I love that because, of course, it's one of my passions. Um, one of the things we do at Propel is have a preaching and teaching boot camp for, for that whole reason. And um, also at through uh, our partnership with uh, Wheaton at Propel, we have Propel cohorts to take women through grad school. Because, And I, I myself am in one. I'm just about, I've got one year left because I wanted to model. So this would be my message to girls. I so wanted to model to them the fact that I think uh, really good theological training is important. So there are young women like me that came through. The Lord gave me a very large platform and opportunity um, but in the age of the internet and where we just have almost no filters, anyone can get on there and say anything. And in the era in which we live, it made me realize the thing that I love is more and more women are finding their voice. More and more women are having an opportunity to, um, you know, kind of contribute. But with that comes a responsibility if we are claiming to be Bible teachers and preachers that we are actually preaching and teaching the Bible and and actually have some good theology in the midst of all of that. And I thought, well, Christine, you know, people could look at you and go, well, look at you, Chris, you just started and now you're all over the world and look what you're doing. And um, I thought, well, I've got to model this. So we started our Propel cohorts um, and bringing young women through. So I would say if God's put the desire in your heart and the Lord has put a call on your life, um, I do want to say this, that God has the capacity to open doors that no man can shut, um, that God uh, truly does make a way. But we also have a responsibility to prepare ourselves. And in a generation, and I say this with much love and tenderness, and as everyone knows, I'm on all social media, I'm very... uh, active on social media, but sometimes we confuse prominence with significance. And in an era that people are looking to build their platform and build their followers and just, you know, um, get more spotlight on us, somehow we think if I put, it's the spirit of the age is put myself out there, man, I need to put myself out there. But there is a danger because if you prematurely put yourself out there, 
um, and the spotlight comes upon you, but you've not yet developed the character or the theological framework to carry you, the light that is on you will destroy you if the light of Christ that is within you cannot sustain you. And so we live in a world, and particularly as women, and in uh, the church world, women in some areas of the church are able to do more than women in other streams and denominations of the church. But you're just going to have to know that as women step more and more into what God's called us to do, it does tend to make us a little bit of a natural target only because it's like anything, a woman in the corporate sector, if she sort of hasn't been in the CEO world or the leadership world and men or even other women have not been used to seeing her in that place, we all want our own biases confirmed. So if we've been told all our life a woman can't do that, we're looking for any excuse to prove that a woman can't do that. So you just don't need to give anyone any more fuel because in your maybe uh, naivety or good intention, you just didn't have really good theology or just didn't have good enough training or hadn't done preparation emotionally or spiritually. You know, with my broken background, God had me. 20 years in the furnace of spiritual formation, serving in my local church under an umbrella of covering that helped to form and shape me. So then when the spotlight came upon me, and like anybody that does what I would do with this much visibility, you do become a target. You you have to have a certain amount of uh, inner fortitude to be able to uh, know what needs to be just like waters off a duck, water off a duck's back and go, well, that's just part and parcel of what I do. Uh, we live in a social media world. We live in a visible world. Uh, people are going to misunderstand some things that I've done. If I make mistakes, they're very public. So people just think it confirms their bias. So even if something has got a thread of truth in it, but is not the whole truth. It's going to be what's out there. So you go, you have to be, you have to have a certain amount of the strength of God on the inside of you to be able to have such a public and such a visible life, good accountability around you to protect you. Um, and people that will call you out on things ahead of time, people that you can uh, confess to, repent to, be accountable to, have systems and structures that will keep you on track because the enemy number one, wants to take you out. He's always wanted to take women out from the beginning of the Garden of Eden. It started way back there. Uh, sometimes he will use people, both men and women, to try to do that to you. So I would say uh, in, if, if you are right now feeling frustrated because you're like, I feel this call and can I just say, uh, for a season, enjoy your anonymity, enjoy your obscurity. <laughs> it is a great gift um, because the more prominent you become, the more of a target you become, the more misunderstood you become, uh, the more other people's jealousies, insecurities, whatever, will come out and come at you. And the more any mistake you make, even if it's unintentional, will be so misconstrued. That And you will have to just yeah. live with that because in the world we live in, there's only so much you can say publicly because it's just the world that it is. And for me, if you have got a broken past like me um, and you can be given to shame, making any kind of mistake, man – you want to do anything you can to make people not think that those things are true. You know, you would. And so to be able to live and have to just accept the fact that until the day I die, certain people are going to think certain things that are untrue because to try to in any way vindicate yourself just in the public 
court of opinion just doesn't work. So it's a different world of ministry we're going to. That When I was growing up, there was no internet, there was no social media. Uh, you could make mistakes and think corrections would happen and discipline could happen and you could move on. Nowadays, it's a different world. And, so, and if a woman says something, that may not be entire, you know, if I had things before the, I'm around before there was even cassette tapes, thank God, because if you took some of the stuff I said um, from then, I'm like, thank God for the grace of God. That's why it's merciful to, to understand that the Lord gives you fields and he, even in the parable of talents, he gives to each according to their ability. So when God enlarges your field, it's because your ability increases. You don't even know what he's protecting you from by keeping you um, at your level. It's It would be ludicrous to look at people like me or some of my other Bible teacher friends that potentially, you know, are reaching millions of people and think, wow, I'm more gifted. I'm more talented. I should be out there doing that tomorrow. It's not about gift or talent, because when the master in Matthew 25 gave to one servant five talents, to the other two, to the other one, the Bible didn't say he gave to each according to their gift or talent. He said he gave to each according to their ability. And their ability is different to your gift and talent. And we have a generation that doesn't understand the difference between gift, talent, anointing or ability. And your ability has got a lot more to do with your inner world. What capacity do you have to bear the weight of what it is that God's calling you to do? Your gift can rapidly take you to a place that your ability will never keep you. And God is more concerned yeah. with developing our that weight on the inside of us and really that's where spiritual formation is crucial and we never outgrow of. Um, but our world is so externally motivated by gift talent. Who's next? Man, I've got a bigger, I've got tons of girls that could out-preach me, out-preach me, absolutely. Are way, way better theologians than I would ever hope to be. Um, and, they, and, they, and yet... Uh, and they wonder, why is Chris Kane out there? I'm better at this and I'm better at that. But God has never used people in the Bible that are better than anyone else at a particular gift. Um, God always is moved by your heart. He said to Samuel, you know, the prophet even got it wrong. The prophet thought it was Eliab. And the Lord said, man, I don't look at what you look at. You look at the external things. That's what man always does. But God looks at the heart. So I would say to any young woman uh, any person, I'd say to the guys too, um, you you would be a lot better off allowing God to do the deep inner work in your heart like David did in anonymity and obscurity in the backside of the desert uh, because when you become king you and when you become anointed, you don't even need to have the position yet. You just need to be anointed to do it. Get ready for the spears to come at you because they'll start being thrown. Folks, I've heard from many of you that you're looking for a next step to interact with the tools that we discuss on this podcast. So starting in mid-May, I'm launching an interactive Zoom book club where we'll meet to discuss the tools and the concepts in my book, Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs. We'll meet for six sessions and in each session, I'll present some content for a few minutes, including some fresh content that isn't in the book. And then I'll put you in a virtual Zoom room with just a few other folks where you'll have an opportunity to chat through some of the questions and the tools each week. 
Each session will also be available for a bunch of Q&A, and you'll also have access to a private discussion group during the week. I'm keeping it as affordable as I can, so $48 total gets you access to all six Zoom sessions. It also gets you a private group, and we'll also mail you a book for that price. Uh, for those who want it, we actually designed a custom high-end MLA journal. It's like a moleskin journal, and you can buy that too when you register for the Zoom. I'm going to keep the number of spaces limited. I want to make sure people have a good chance to interact. So if this is something you're interested in, just shoot me an email, steve at stevecusswords.com, or contact me through Twitter or Insta on at stevecusswords. I'll have a registration link available soon, but I'm starting an interest list now. So if you're wanting to dig a bit deeper into the materials, or maybe you just need a kick in the butt to get to reading the book, you can join the Interactive Book Club and send me your info. Thanks, folks. Let's talk about your outer world. When you, you mentioned Nick, your husband, you mentioned your dear friends, how do they know that you're not okay before you know that you're not okay? Um, I will start to withdraw from them uh, without realizing it. Like I haven't realized, but they'll yeah. uh, they'll realize, and I'll I'll withdraw under the guise of activity, and of course, ministry activity. That is the the most justifiably valid reason to withdraw yeah. because I'm so spiritual <laughs> and the world needs me. Great. Yeah, yeah. Oh, great, yeah. Uh, for most leaders, it's always a little different, but it's there's always a couple of situations that when we're walking into them, we know we're going to be anxious. Mm -hmm. And it's usually about somebody's personality or, or the, like, like for me, I'll, I'll just give an example. If I'm walking into a situation where I'm not sure I know the answer, of whatever they want to know, I'll get, I'll get anxious ahead of time. Could you give us one or two situations in your life where you just know, oh man, that's a situation where I'm going to be anxious? Yeah. Uh, before I came on the podcast with you, because you guys are like therapists and in all that, and I'm like, oh my word, okay, um, you know, what are you going to discuss? Like, my, if I don't control my mind, I said that to you before I got on the podcast. I'm like, I, yeah. I'm like up at four o'clock, going, oh my word, okay, um, confess any unrepentant sin. I'll make stuff up, thinking, okay, what is still not right? I'm so I'm so mortified that my show on relieving anxiety is generating so much anxiety for you. It's so, just mortifying to me. So that would be um, my thing. And if I'm um, particularly walking in to a scenario where I know that I don't even begin to know what to do. Like I feel a lot okay. better if I can have at least like I've got three things we can start with and then go, but when I know that I just don't know. I just don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I my heart will race, and I become really hyper vigilant. Like I'm, I'm so it's it's ridiculous. Like you know how I become in my mind. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A, a lot of your work, especially with A21, is acute anxiety. It's actual yeah. life and death and actual rescue. There's also chronic anxiety, which I think a leader carries, and that's more. It's not actual life and death. It's the things that we think we need to be okay that we don't really need. 
Does one or two come to mind for you? Like, again, for me, I need the approval of another person. If I don't have the approval of somebody else, I'm going to be anxious unless I do some of my work. Does anything come to mind yeah, for you or something I, you think you need? certain friends. I, like, you know, I'm very tender-hearted. So to get really into my inner world, um, I'm a bit of a slow burner, so it takes time. But once yeah. you're in, uh, you know, there's a scripture, I can't remember, it's in one of the Psalms, Eugene Peterson um, it translate, translated it uh, that when you get kicked in the gut and feel like the wind's been knocked out of you, you know, it, the Lord says, I, I'm with you. But someone's got to be very close to you to kick you in the gut. I can pretty much deal with global issues. and um, But if I've let you in, and again, you know, with my therapist, we talk about is this because of my abandonment, my rejection? I don't know. But that perception that either I think you've let me down or you haven't seen me when you're in my mm. real world um, and you haven't been there for me or I perceive that you've kicked me in the gut, that can send me back. But more than something attacking the ministry or whatever, it cripples me and paralyzes me, particularly if you are a little bit older and have in some ways filled a bit of a mothering role in my life or something like that, that yep. that could put me on my back for six months. I mean, every time yep. I've gone into intense therapy, it has come the three times in my life, it was triggered by that kind of thing. Um, and it all, once we did the work, would come back to in some area, that friend also served a mothering role in my life. So that mm. was pretty traumatic for me. And I, which, you know, the thing at my age now, because one was very recent, when I say recent, it was three years ago, but I would say it took a year and a half, 18 months for me to even begin to breathe normally again in that area. So that more personal side, um, yeah. it takes a long time for someone to get in there. But boy, this very recent one showed me how deeply it could unravel. I, I, I really didn't think, to be honest, this would be very true. I didn't think I was going to come back from this one. I, I really, I said, um, I've just finished a book that, that's called um, How Did I Get Here? But it's, you know, it doesn't go at all into detail about this. But, but it was finally when I knew I desperately needed help. Nick didn't know what else to do. Like Nick is my you know, just so unbelievable to me. But he, when when Nick turns around and goes, you have got to go and see someone. It's like I have got to go and see someone. We're, he's, we're done. Yeah. But we were watching, um, he likes to watch like these videos on the Navy SEALs, um, you know, and there was this one that apparently I've, I've now learned, there's this thing called Hell Week, which is that week. Yeah. Okay, so, and, you know, I one night before I really broke, broken, had we knew I had to go get help. Um, I was watching it with him, and the the whole goal of this hell week is, you know, they break you down mentally and uh, physically so that you will go and ring the bell and basically, you know, quit your boot camp. And so everyone that even gets into hell week to even get in, you're an elite athlete. I mean, you've got to be good enough. You're the you are the one percent. Uh, before you get to be the 0.01%, you're in the 1% to even get into Hell Week. So you're already the best of the best. And physically, 
everyone that gets in could physically actually do all the stuff that needs to be done. But by the time they break you down mentally, you've rung the bell. And we were watching this and they were dropping the guys out of the helicopter. They're in the water for hours, the whole thing. And then the um, sergeant major is yelling at them, making them feel like nothing. And there was this one part where it was well into the night and the soldiers had been in the freezing cold water for I think it was like eight hours and they still had four hours to go. And I just started weeping. Um, and I looked at Nick and I said, I think I know what how I feel. I said, this, this has so rocked me. I, I don't know how to come back. I don't even have the emotional tools because it, it was so tied in to – my mother, my mother wound. I mean, it was so tied into. So I, 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 if you had have asked me, could I have been so triggered that this thing, I wouldn't have thought there was another layer to go down. I, I would not have thought there was another layer to go down here. But I said, it's like I'm sitting in the cold water and the fact is I know I can. There's not an issue. I know I can make another four hours. I've been in this cold water before. I know I'm not going to die. I know that my body has got the strength to do it. So when it comes to even ministry and life, and because I'd let this person so dear into my heart and my broader ministry and our team and my family, um, I said, it's like I, um, for the first time in 31 years, it's not that I don't think I can, I just don't think I want to. And that realisation I don't, I had never experienced that. It, it had never in 31 years come to me that, you know what, Jesus, this is too far. I've come as far as I can come. I, you know, this is awesome. We'll do this from a distance, which obviously I just need to say that to go what then I had to unpack with my therapist about what that actually meant and how much I had tied yeah. this person into following Jesus yeah. and so many other layers to that. But, But at that moment, I didn't know all of that. I just was... Um, I'm done, and which led me all the way through to how did I get here? And then, you know, so now I'm the other side back. But, I mean, that that is as recent as the unravelling was by March 2017. We've just done March 2020, and um, that's how close that was. I think we're, we're always profoundly grateful when leaders who are veterans, you've been around the block several decades, uh, just openly sharing about present tense battles and and you've just shared like one that that almost took you out you know yeah. and you you think you're resilient you've or, by that point you'd already done so much work and yet here's this fresh situation i'm just i'm grateful that you were willing to share that with us well okay yeah, yeah. so christine why don't we uh the last couple of gauntlet questions um give me a, a geographical place or an activity that just makes you feel most human and alive, just makes you feel like a, a kid in the kingdom? Oh, the ocean for me. I, I'm very blessed. I live in Southern California and um, get to do uh, daily ocean walks, you know, when I'm home and then wherever I am in the world, you know, I'm always to, as much as I can be near the ocean. So for me, the sound, the smell, the feel, everything about it um, just soothes my soul and um, brings me to life. No matter how I'm feeling, I go down there, I hear those waves um, and I just, and just the vastness of it. It helps me 
get perspective, like being in a plane at 35,000 feet does. The yeah. ocean does that for me as well. It's just like, you know what, God, you are so much bigger. And then what I'm going through, it, it matters to him, but I can put it in perspective that, you know what, this thing is a drop in a very large ocean. It's okay. We're going to get yeah. through that. So it, it just on so many levels, it brings me to life. It just brings me joy. I, like I smi- yeah. I'm smiling just thinking about going down yeah. there. Yeah, it it yeah. brings me so much joy. Now, you know, I'm a West Coast Aussie, I'm a sand grouper. Uh, so I grew up the way God intended, where the sun sinks into the ocean, <laughs> yep. which is now what you do in California. Uh-huh. Was that hard for you to adjust? Yeah, because I'm an East Coaster, which really yeah. is, you know, sunrise is what. Um, <laughs> Crazy. That doesn't make any sense. But I get to see it all in one life. I saw the rise for the first 45 years. I'm going to get it setting for the next 45 <laughs> It's, you know, some of my favorite childhood memories are fish and chips on the beach as yep. the sun sinks into the ocean. Nothing better. Nothing, nothing. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Uh, you know, as you know, a lot of my work, I, I, I'm fascinated by the theology of anxiety, the spiritual force that anxiety is. I don't think we pay enough attention to that. Mm-hmm. And I'm captivated by what John says in First John, that perfect love casts out all fear. And so I, I think very simply, it's very difficult to be in the grip of anxiety and in the grip of the unconditional love of God at the same time. One generally displaces the other. So to that end, Christine, when in your life do you feel most fully loved? Um, I was thinking about that when uh, you asked that. But, you know, truly, uh, and these last few nights have uh, really shown me that because, of course, because of this pandemic, we're home every night, which is uh, very unusual for us. We, you know, for 30 years have been doing 200 plus hotel nights a year. It's just what you do as an evangelist and being on the road. But um, as I've watched all of us and just found myself laughing, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this podcast with you on my kitchen bench, which is my, where everything is written, every sermon's written. My life happens at this kitchen bench. But around this bench with my kids and Nick, laughing and eating the food we've all just cooked together, uh, it's like I think I pretty much would think every night since this has started, one of us will always go, this is just unbelievable. It's like there is no moment I'm happier. There's no moment that I feel the goodness of God, the love of God, uh, it, than this. Like, and here we are in possibly the most stressful situation of our entire ministry life, and in my lifetime on the earth, all at one time. Yeah. That you know what yeah. is going on. That does not in any way minimize uh, what's happening nope. on the earth. But isn't it weird that in the midst of all of that, I'm feeling the goodness of God, the love of God, the grace of God around this kitchen bench eating food that my 14 and 18 year old daughter and my husband has barbecued. I mean, he's just like living his best life, barbecuing like a good old Aussie Barbie. And he's like, <laughs> and he literally saying to the girls, I'm going to show you what a good Aussie Barbie, not this American stuff, come and we'll show. And, you know, and I just thought that God would allow me uh, this bliss in this moment is. So today, that's how I feel most loved. Yeah, lovely. Christine, you know, we were excited to have you on and um, I think quite honestly we had high expectations. You've blown them out of the water. This oh, has been so a kind. for us. <laughs> thank you so much for coming and sharing your heart with us. Yeah. Well, thank you, guys. It's my honour and I can't wait to meet you in person. I'm in Denver a lot, so I hope that happens. Oh, we hope so too. That would be a delight for us. Okay, I love you guys. Thank you. Thank you.
For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.